0: Good evening, I'm Pastor Brooks. I'll be bringing you the word this evening. The uh, first and second graders, you are dismissed to go to class. Well, we've been going through so far this fall the story of God, and our purpose is is to get a glimpse. Typically here at Grace Community Church, we go through books of the Bible. Say we go through Ephesians or we go through Ecclesiastes. And we tend to focus on what the intent of the author is at that moment and what each passage says and how it relates to the passage before and the passage after. And that—that that is typically our practice. And we believe there's great wisdom in doing so. But over the past eight weeks, what we've been doing is we've been zooming out. And instead of looking at the individual trees, what we're doing is looking at the forest. We're looking at the overarching narrative of the entire Scripture and the unified story that's found within it about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And what we've been so far, where we've seen is we begin with with creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then jumping ahead to verse 26 and 27, what we see is is God saying, let us make man in our image. So created man, male and female, he created them. And then it says later that he commanded them to be fruitful and to multiply. And that's not good for man to be alone. And what what you see in the garden there in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 is mankind fulfilling their purpose, to be fruitful, to multiply, to, to have fellowship and perfect union with one another and with God. As image bearers, we are to manifest and to reflect God's glory to one another and to use our gifts and use our talents and use our time to, for the good of human flourishing as we make the quote-unquote garden more fruitful, more fruitful. That lasted all of about five minutes. And then there was rebellion. One prohibition, just one Do not eat of the tree in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And Adam and Eve, both being deceived by the serpent, gave in to the temptation to believe that God no longer had their best interest at heart. And so they entered into sin. They entered into rebellion to seek out that which would make them happy. To quote-unquote be like God. And they took the fruit and they ate it. And you and I and every human being since... Save Christ, every human being since has had the nature and the will to be exactly like our parents in the garden. Each of us have turned astray. Each of us have gone our own way. And as you look around the world and you see the chaos and you see nations at war with one another and you see within cultures, there's cultures at war with one another, tribes warring against tribes, races against races, political parties against political parties, and families against families, husband against wives, sibling against sibling. And, and to be truthful, if you look in the mirror you don't necessarily like the person that you see, looking back. So we don't even like ourselves, let alone the people that we're surrounded by. And that's because of the fall. That's because of rebellion. And last week, Pastor Jason looked at the promise. So what's God going to do about it? Yes, he created us for a purpose, and that's to bear his image, and we fail to do so. And sin ruins the world. So what is God's plan? And last week, uh, Pastor Jason looked at four different covenants, You have the the covenant with Noah. God promises to Noah, I promise that I am not going to annihilate. Even though your nature is not different from anybody else's nature, your heart is still bent towards evil, I'm not going to destroy the earth again. There's going to be seasons for growing and planting, and I give you the commission, the, the same command I gave your parents, Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. In other words, start afresh. And so he does and plants a vineyard and gets drunk and passes out naked and blows it. Doesn't take long. And then years later, you have the the Abrahamic covenant. God makes a a promise and a covenant with Abraham and says, go to the nation. Go to the land that I will show you. And I will bless all nations through your offspring. And Abraham's part is to simply trust the Lord. And he does. Partially, he goes. He goes. He goes, and then he blows it. He blows it and sexually abuses his wife's servant. And there's a child born, which is not the child of promise. And there's strife, and there's conflict. And once again, the second covenant, man doesn't keep his part. And then... Later on, you have the covenant with Moses as God delivers his people out of Egypt. And he says, I, you are my chosen people with an outstretched arm. I have a mighty arm. I've delivered you. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before you. I alone shall be your God. You shall make no graven image. Shall not take my name in vain, and he gives them the, the Mosaic covenant, he gives them the law, and he says, Your responsibility, I am your God, I've saved you because I've now saved you. You are to walk humbly with me and obey me that's your part. And that lasted for what 10 minutes before they made the golden calf once again. Another covenant, another broken promise. Not on God's part. God is the covenant maker and He's the promise keeper. But every covenant that God has made and established with man, mankind has completely been unfaithful. And then lastly, the Davidic covenant. Finally, in the line of Abraham, there is that that shepherd boy who, who is described as a man after God's own heart. A man after God's own heart. And he God places him on the throne of Israel and he says, your descendants shall never, ever fail to rule from the throne. It will be an everlasting kingdom. And your responsibility, David, is to faithfully trust me and to lead your people to trust me. And two chapters later, Bathsheba, adultery, murder, conspiracy, drastic consequences, dysfunctional family within two generations, civil war and a divided kingdom. So God makes a promise and he's got a plan and he establishes these covenants. But the problem is we've never made a promise we couldn't break. Never made a promise we couldn't break. So this is illustrated in last week. come home early from work to to meet. Uh, we're going to do some premarital counseling, my wife and I, and we're going to have two couples over. And so I come home and I'm, I'm going to make dinner and, and help. And so it's about three o'clock or so. And so I'm chopping vegetables and I'm getting ready. And so at six o'clock, we're going to have this dinner. And then at 8 o'clock, I'm going to zoom over to Carver, Hawkeye Arena, and I'm going to speak uh, to Athletes in Action. I'm going to preach the gospel there. So it's this full schedule. It's a full schedule. And my wife and I are having this conversation, and, and I have this propensity not to rest. I have this propensity to, to push a little bit too hard, and I don't know when to say no. And so my wife, we're having a good conversation about boundaries, about boundaries, and how there's a danger, there's a danger that I might be creeping into overwork and allowing ministry to occupy too much of my time. I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, that's a real danger, and, and I'm very aware of it, very aware of it. And So then my wife goes off to a doctor's appointment. She comes back, it's probably 5:20 now, and I'm getting things ready, and, and, uh, and my phone rings, and Oh, it's Dave Kirk. Dave Kirk's a pastor of family ministries at Grace, and I swipe and I'm like, hello. Yeah, this is Brooks. Yes, I'd be happy to be the savior of the world. What do you need? Sure. All the problems? Sure. I can fix all those. Yeah, here's what we'll do. We'll do this, 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 and this. By the way, that's not literally what I said, but this is, this is why I take the call when I shouldn't take the call is because it's an idolatrous relationship that I have with ministry at times. So I'm having this conversation, and my wife, she's looking at me, and her eyes begin to glow an ember red, and then they become white hot, and lasers start shooting out of her eyes. And I'm like, hey, Dave, I gotta go, by." And so I get off the phone real quick, and she's absolutely livid, livid, now, I'm going to ask you, we're going to, this is a test, this is, and I want honesty, so don't snow me here. I want honesty, and I'm speaking just to the men. How many of you think my wife is overreacting? Be honest. Anybody think she's overreacting? You're millennials. <laughs> By the way, you answered correctly. Grant, did you have your hand up, kind of? Okay, if he, Yeah. Okay, we have one. In North Liberty, 30 morons. Raise their hand. <laughs> None of them millennials. Okay, 30 morons, aptly labeled. I called them morons in the service, by the way. How many of you morons think? And they all went, okay, let, let me tell you why my wife was completely justified in her righteous indignation. You see, a year and a half ago, closer to two years, I began to start having Um, I don't want to call them panic attacks, but heart palpitations. I could feel my pulse in my teeth. And if you're in in the medical industry, you're not supposed to be able to take your pulse by touching your molars. That's just not a thing. But I'd be lying awake at night feeling my heartbeat in my mouth. That's not right. And I'm, I'm thinking about all of these things and all these people's problems and, and the counseling sessions that are unresolved. And, and I'm just thinking about ministry all the time. And I went to the doctor because my heart just kind of was just beating. I, I, I could feel it in my chest. I'm like, this isn't right. So I go to the doctor and they said, there's nothing physically wrong with you. You're just stressed. So I, I, I started to get, okay, I'm, I'm starting to make a connection. I don't rest well. I don't rest well. So I downloaded about four sermons by Tim Keller on the Sabbath and rest. And I I made this glorious covenant. Here it is. This is the original covenant. Not with God and Israel on Sinai. But this is my covenant to rest. I typed it up. And I'm just going to read it for you. This is a quote from Luke 10, 38 through 42. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And when a woman named Martha welcomed him to her home, and she, she had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered, Martha, Martha, you're anxious And troubled about many things. But there's only one thing necessary, and Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. So that's Luke, and and then I have my own commentary. Here's a paragraph that I wrote. Service within the church is both good and right, but there are times when one must choose to step away from serving the church in order to be with family and to friends and to sit at the feet of Jesus. In order to ensure that I do not bring work home and therefore harm myself and my family, I pledge to the following five commitments. you ready for this joke? I'll shut my phone off when I come home from work. I'll not send or open work emails on my computer when I come home from work. I won't text people from work or answer work-related texts on my day off. I will take one day for Sabbath each week, which is not Sunday for me. And I will intentionally plan to ensure that we take enough vacation each year. That's my signature, March 8th, 2018. Do you know when I keep this covenant? whenever it's convenient, because I have never made a promise that I'm not willing to break. I am not fundamentally different than Noah. I'm not fundamentally different from Abraham. I'm not fundamentally different than Moses, and I'm not fundamentally different than David. How many of you are sick and tired of making promises to people that you love, to yourself, and to God, only to fail over and over again? Is there anybody else that's tired of failure besides myself? Then I have really super good news for you. There's a better way. It's not the Noah covenant, it's not the Abrahamic covenant, not the Mosaic covenant, and it's not the Davidic covenant, it's the new covenant. Because we are by nature promise breakers, but we have a Savior, and He's a promise keeper. What Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and every other man and woman born since or before has not been able to do in keeping their part of the covenant with God. Jesus has. Let's pray. Father, as we open up the scriptures and we look at this new covenant, Spirit, this covenant is completely dependent upon you doing a work in us that we can't do for ourselves. So Jesus, speak to us communicate with us open our minds and hearts and help us to see the beauty of the gospel that we might believe and believing we might have life we pray this in jesus name amen so redemption where is our hope our hope is not making one more promise or writing one stupid covenant and signing and dating it like i did by the way that's not a bad idea I should just go back and re sign it and redate it so when I break it next time, I can share it with you all again. But where's our hope? Our hope is in a new covenant. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that, that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me, all of them, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So, so Jeremiah is giving this, this prophetic covenant Here's what God's going to do in the latter days. Someday, he gives this prophecy, and then they go into captivity into Babylon. Seventy years later, they return. There's a few more prophets that come up, and then in the story of God, we enter the part called intermission. How many of you have been to Hancher where Midway through the play or the musical, the the lights come on and everyone goes and gets a coke. Now, okay, that's where we're at. That's where we're at. So after the exile, when the exiles return, there is 400 years of silence. No more covenants. Just a, just an eager awaiting for when is this going to happen? When is this new covenant going to be ratified? When is this Savior going to come? When is this when is this person going to to crush the head of the serpent? When is this all going to happen? And then the last of the Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist. I say the last of the Old Testament prophets. Technically, he's, he's introduced in the New Testament, but he's of the Old Testament genre. He is the last of the prophets before the Messiah. He's the forerunner. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of the crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. And then in John chapter 1, verse 29 and 30, the next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man. Who ranks before me because he was before me. John the Baptist sees Jesus approaching and he turns all eyes and all gaze from himself, the baptizer, to the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. Here's what John understood John understood that Jesus Christ is the seed of the woman who would have his heel bruised as he crushed the head of the serpent. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. John the Baptist understood that Jesus Christ is the offspring of Abraham, through whom all nations on earth would be blessed. John the Baptist understood in seeing Jesus walked down the banks of the Jordan that Jesus Christ is the better high priest who, unlike in the Mosaic Covenant, the Levitical priesthood could never atone for sin. But he understood that this Jesus is the better high priest who can atone and mediate between a sinful mankind and a holy and righteous God. John the Baptist understood that this Jesus was the descendant of David in the line of Judah who was worthy to sit on an everlasting throne and rule from on high. John the Baptist knew that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of every covenant God ever made and would ratify a new and better covenant. And so he said, there he is, the wait's over, And the curtains open and onto the stage walks. God made flesh who dwells among us. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, Although he, being in very nature God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of man. And being born in the likeness of man, he took the image of a servant and humbled himself and became obedient even unto death, death on a cross. This is the climax of the story of God. This is what everyone has been waiting for all throughout the ages. So Jesus comes onto the scene, this is after his baptism, in a similar way, I don't believe this is coincidence, that Israel wandered for 40 years in the desert before they entered the promised land and crossed the Jordan. Jesus enters the wilderness and is tempted for 40 days. And upon the completion of this temptation, he enters his public phase of ministry, And this is the first thing he says. Now John, after he was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Let's start with that first phrase. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. That begs the question, what do you mean kingdom of God? It's here now. John said the same thing. It's just about here. Jesus is saying, it's here now. It's at hand. It's at hand. What does he mean? He means that what my Father and I and the Holy Spirit initiated in the garden by creating you in our image, in the image of God, in pristine conditions where there was perfection, where you were to have fellowship with me and you were to have fellowship with one another, where you were to use your time, your talent, your treasure for the good of human flourishing, that time is now. I've come to redeem that which sin is broken. I've come to redeem fallen mankind and I've come to redeem fallen creation and I'm reestablishing my kingdom and I'm the king. What sin has destroyed, I'm going to bring back and it begins right now. Now, he does coach them and he does teach them as we learned in the parables of the kingdom this summer that this kingdom is not an overnight thing. It's like a mustard seed that falls into the ground. It's the smallest of garden plants, but it grows and becomes large and and all the birds of the air find their home in it. It's like a a batch of yeast which is put into a big batch of dough and it gradually works its way through the whole batch. So this kingdom, although initially it starts small, it's going to end in absolute glory. Eden, in a sense, will be reestablished, only it will be better. Because there will be more people from all nations. That's what he means. But for this to happen, there needs to be a response or we miss it. Or we miss it as individuals. It'll happen whether we're there or not. But for us to participate, two things need to happen. Number one, we need to repent. Repent. The word repent simply means change direction. Lean not on your own understanding. Stop doing what your parents did. Not your parents, literal parents, but Adam and Eve. Stop deciding for yourself that you and I, we know what's best. We can fulfill our own happiness quotient, but rather trust. Stop like sheep gone astray. Stop. Come back to the shepherd. Come back. So there's a, there's a change in attitude, there's a change in heart, and there's a change in behavior that follows. But, but here's the thing. How many of you have repented over and over and over again of the same stupid stuff. Anybody? Like a dog that returns to your vomit. You repent of the vomit. It's disgusting, but you eat it anyway. Why do we do this? Because repentance is not enough. Repentance does not bring about lasting change. Otherwise, the proverb, a dog returns to a vomit, would be be meaningless because you'd learn your lesson. But we don't seem to learn our lesson. There has to be something else that takes place something that's fundamentally life-transforming. So repentance is not enough. We must believe in the gospel. The word gospel means what? Grace, you should, you've heard this a million times. What does gospel mean literally? Good news. So because I, I'm a mindless moron and I, I get bored and I turn on my, every time I'm bored, I'm like, I should see if there's anything different happening in the world. Click the news icon. Yep, still sucks. I don't know why I bother. But anyway, I'm flipping through my phone, scrolling through the headlines. I kid you not, there was a headline that's, that talked about what Hugh Jackman ordered at a restaurant. That's news now. Hugh Jackman, you know, Wolverine, he, he, he ordered food at a restaurant. That's not good news. It's not even news. But it's in the news. So, so we're, we're, we're bombarded with news all the time. I think we lose sight of what this word gospel, good news, means. Good news is the kind of news that when you hear it, you can't not be changed forever. That's what it means. It's not just, you know, back in 2016, I'm a Cubs fan. Good news, the Cubs won. That's not what that means. That didn't change my life forever. Some of you are like, well, you're not a real true Cubs fan then. It didn't change my life. I was happy. But it didn't change my life. This is the kind of news which alters one's existence. This is the kind of news that those who were in Auschwitz or Dachau when the Soviets or the Allied came and burst open the doors and said, you're free, that's what this is. This is the kind of news that takes one from slavery into into freedom. This is the kind of news that takes one who is headed for death into life. This is the kind of news that unlocks the heart of someone's heart so that they're utterly transformed and they can no longer be the same. This is the gospel. This is good news. And Jesus is here and he's saying, It's now. It's not in the future. It's now. Right now. Believe it. Believe it. So, this is redemption. He establishes a new covenant. So, let's walk through some things that He has to do and things that He does to make this a reality. Because remember, He has not done anything with sin yet. He's going to, but how does He do it? First of all, let's take a look at His intent. John chapter 6, verse 35. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you don't believe. All that the Father has given me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Catch this in verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. I want you to just let verse 38 just soak into your minds just for a minute. Jesus Christ always and only does the will of his Father in heaven. There is never a moment in the life of Jesus from the cradle to the cross where he did anything independent of his Father's will. Everything that he did, he did for his Father's glory. There's not another human being that can make that claim. There's not a human being that can make that claim for 30 seconds, let alone 33 years. Jesus made it with integrity because... He is the incarnation of the living God. And in eternity past, when he was united with the Father and the Spirit, he could do nothing but glorify his Father. He could do nothing but love his Father and be loved by his Father. And now as man, having emptied himself of his glory and having taken on human flesh, who is tempted in every way as we are, yet every waking and sleeping moment of his life was done to please his Abba Father. That's his intent. So we get to the the end, and, and this is a It's a curious thing, and and you've noticed this, I'm sure, but when you read Matthew and you read Mark and Luke and John, you'll notice that very, very little time, if any, is spent on Jesus' childhood, with the exception of the the birth narratives in Matthew and Luke. And those only get a couple chapters. The majority of the gospel is is spent on his three years of ministry with his disciples, and the the majority of the gospels is spent on the last week of his life. For example, John chapter 13, there's 21 chapters in John, 12 chapters cover three years, and then 13 through 21 covers seven days. There's a reason for that, because that's where the significance is. So jump into John chapter 17, and let's take a look at his prayer. John chapter 17, this is after the Last Supper. Jesus has instituted the Last Supper, and he's told them, he says, you, get you know what, I'm going to go to a place, and I'm going to prepare a place for you, and you can't come with me, but I'm going to come back, and you're going to come to where I'm in, where I'm at. And, and I'm going to be arrested, and all of you are going to be scattered, and, and Peter's like, not me, I'm not going to, I'll never, I'll never deny you. Peter, before you hear the rooster crow, you will have already denied me three different times. And they're sad and they're bewildered and they can't figure out what he's talking about. He keeps talking about being betrayed and and, and dying and giving himself. and They're they're just bewildered and they're tired and so they leave the upper room and and Jesus in, in chapter 17 verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Only and always lived to do the will of the Father. And now the will of the Father is for him to be glorified. And here's what it means to be glorified. To be lifted up on a pole for the sins of the world. That those whom he dies for may come to know the Father. Because that's what eternal life is. He is going to reestablish what mankind lost in the garden. The intimacy that we forfeited in the garden. He's going to reestablish that. And in doing so, he is going to glorify both himself and his Father. And the means by which he plans to do that is the cross. Is the cross. So he finishes his prayer. He finishes his prayer. And as he finishes this prayer, he sees the torches coming in the distance. Led by his friend Judas who approaches him and kisses him on the cheek and calls him rabbi that's the signal for this is the one you are to arrest and they make the move to arrest him and Peter being the impetuous one who is act first think later takes out a sword and charges Malchus the high priest's servant and slashes at his head and cuts off his ear and Jesus says put it away Peter For whoever lives by the sword will die by the sword. And then he reaches down and he heals one of the very individuals who is to take him to his death. And the disciples scatter, each to their own way. And they take Jesus before Ananias and Caiaphas, the high priest. And then they escort him over to Herod and back to Caiaphas and then to Pilate. And there's a kangaroo court And in the midst of all of this, he fulfills exactly what Isaiah said he would fulfill. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7 He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He refused to make a defense. Because unlike me and unlike you, he was not interested in self preservation. He was interested in glorifying his father. And then lastly, he stands before Pontius Pilate, who has the power and has the ability to free him. And he enters into a dialogue. Pilate says, So you are a king then? He says, You have said so. Pilate says, What am I, a Jew? Your people want you dead. Jesus says, I am a king. It's for this reason that I came into this world, but my kingdom is not of this world. If it were of this world, my disciples would fight to free me, but my kingdom is not of this world. But all who are on the side of truth, listen to me. And Pilate's response was one sentence. What is truth? What is truth? Here's Pilate's not asking a question. Pilate's making a statement. Here's what he's saying. You talk about truth. You're a Jewish rabbi with a robe. You don't have any money. You don't have an army. You have no power. And you're going on about truth and kingdoms and citizens. What matters in this life is power. And that's what I have. I have the authority and I have the power to release you. Or to put you to death. And he tries to free him. He goes before the Jewish people and he says, I find no cause to condemn this man as he is innocent. And the Jewish people cry out, crucify him. If you do not crucify him, you are no friend to Caesar's. And he said, it is my custom to release to you one prisoner every year at this time. Shall I release Jesus, the carpenter's son, The king of the Jews, no, Barabbas, who is convicted of insurrection and murder. And so a murderer goes free and an innocent man is condemned to die. And he goes before Herod and he goes before the soldiers and the Roman soldiers beat him mercilessly. They whip him with a cat of nine tails with bone and metals woven into the leather strips. He's flayed, he's open, he's bleeding, he's wounded. And they press a crown of thorns into his head to mock him as the king of the Jews. And they put a purple robe around him and the soldiers bow at his feet. Hail, king of the Jews, hail, king of the Jews. And they make him carry his own cross through the streets, but weakened because of the loss of blood, he falls to the ground And they bring in Simon of Cyrene to carry the cross the rest of the way until they get to Golgotha. And Jesus is laid upon a cross between two thieves and his ankles and his hands are nailed to the cross and they hoist the cross up as it falls into the hole that it was dug for. And the passers-by mock him. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let's see if he can save himself. Let's see if he calls down angels from heaven. Let's see if he calls Elijah. And the thieves on either side of him mocked him as well. Jesus looked down at his feet where the women and his mother were gathered. And John, the only disciple who was there. And he said, woman, behold your son. And John, behold your mother. Loosely translated, John, take care of my mom. And then he uttered these words from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? as the father whom he had been in perfect union and fellowship with from eternity past, and known only love and acceptance and joy, his father turned his face away as he took the sin of the world. Your sin and my sin upon himself. And he was rejected By the one who loved him most. And then he said, it's finished. And he breathed his last and he gave up his spirit. What does that even mean? What's finished? What's finished? Isaiah 53, 600 years prior. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Here's what's finished. The Lord has laid upon Jesus Christ your sin and my sin. And that's why the Old Testament says that he has separated our sins as far as the east is from the west. If you flew due north and you flew past the North Pole, what direction would you be heading? South. If you were on the equator and you started heading east, at what point in time do you stop heading east? You never stop heading east. When the prophet says that God will separate your sin as far as from the east is from the west, that's a way of saying He will separate your sins as far as you, as far as infinity is concerned. It will never be remembered again. In Malachi, it says that he will cast your sins into the depths of the sea. And the saint, Corey Ten Boom, who helped Jews escape from from Holland, has once said, and he will post a sign on the beach that says, and there is no fishing allowed your sins have been atoned for. There's no work that you must do. There's no penance that you must pay. It doesn't matter how far you have strayed. It doesn't matter to the degree to which you find yourself in disgust of your own failures. All of those sins Jesus Christ bore on the cross, there's nothing you and I need to do to rectify Or do anything about those sins that Christ has not already done. And that's why it says that though your sins be as scarlet, you shall be washed whiter than snow. And if you have trusted Jesus Christ, you're forgiven for your past sins, for the sins of today, and for the sins of your future. And that would be good news if that were all, but that's only half of it. That's only part of the gospel. The other part of the gospel in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, and he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, and he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Get this. By his knowledge... Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities? It's not simply that he has separated your sins as far as the east is from the west, it's that Jesus Christ, the righteous one, has made you to be accounted righteous. He lived and only lived to do the will of his Father in heaven, he is the only person who has ever. Merited reward from the Father. And when the Father looks at you, His redeemed children, He sees someone who is no longer guilty of sin because His Son has bore that sin. And He sees someone who is perfectly righteous in Christ. He sees someone who is blood-bought and now royalty In Jesus, seated in the heavenly realms with everything that Christ is His is now yours. His meritous accomplishments on the cross are yours. That's unbelievable. And yet Jesus said repent and believe it. That's the gospel. And you can't do anything to earn it or merit it. It's an absolute free gift to anyone who feels their need. That's the only requirement, is that you feel your need. That was good news for me back in 1988 as a young college student who felt the weight of his sin and knew that he deserved damnation. But it's good news for a pastor of 20-some years who can't keep a promise to his wife to rest. The gospel is just as precious today As it was 33 years ago. And it will be precious 10,000 years from now. It's good, good news. And on the third day, he rose again and he appeared to his disciples. Peace be with you. As I have been sent, so I send you. And he breathed on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And he told them to go out into the world and to proclaim the good news because there's people that don't know. There's people that have not yet believed. There's people that this is available to and they don't understand. And we have been given and entrusted with the privilege of taking that gospel to the nations and to our neighbors. And the only question is, how will we respond? John says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Here's the the reality. I don't know all of you. I know some of you. But I know that in this room right now, there is someone who has not yet received Christ as their Savior. These things are written down so that you would no longer trust in your own righteousness and your own striving, and that you would rest from striving and receive what Christ has striven to give you. And for some of you, that means that you need to repent of blatant sin, which you know is not God's will. And your repentance isn't what saves you. What Jesus done on the cross is what saves you. It's finished. You don't need to do penance. You just need to repent and believe what he has done for you. And cry out to him, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. You are a savior. Save me from my sin. And here's the difference between Jesus and you and I. He's not a man that he should lie when he says that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved, he actually means it. Some of you need to repent of your sin, but there's some of you that might need to repent of your righteousness because you think that by law-keeping you are making yourself right with God. If you have broken one part of the law, you've broken all of the law, and you are cursed in your law-keeping. So repent of your sin and repent of your righteousness and receive the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, do not receive the grace of the Lord in vain. Now is the day of salvation. Call on him today. And some of you are like, oh, preach it, brother. Preach it. Those people that don't know Jesus need to hear this. If you've been following Jesus for 10 minutes, 10 years, or 30-some years as I have, you need the gospel as much as the person who doesn't know Jesus. Do you want to know the reason I break a covenant like the covenant to rest? It's because I keep falling into this self-justification mode. I keep falling into this, this, this false belief that somehow I have to prove that I'm I'm better than I actually am. That that somehow, if I can just do enough, I'll feel better about myself. And then, when I'm called on that, if I'm not believing the gospel, my natural tendency is to self-justify, which leads to pride, which leads to self-defense, which leads to strife, which leads to conflict, because then I can't take criticism. But when I rest and I believe the gospel, as someone who's been following the Lord since 1988, I can humble myself and recognize it's his righteousness. I don't have to prop up myself. And, and it, it was the most beautiful thing to have my wife furious at me last Monday, because probably for the first time in 30 years of my marriage, I didn't need to defend myself. I said, "You're completely right." I failed. I have, no, I have nothing to stand on, and I confess it as sin and ask your forgiveness. I was only able to do that because I was believing that Christ is my righteousness at that moment. The gospel is the ABCs of Christianity, Tim Keller says, but it's also the A to Z and everything in between. It's good news. It's good news. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Jesus, you are alone, worthy to be worshiped. Oh, man, thank you for the new covenant, which is accomplished through your finished work on the cross. You are a good, good Savior. Lord, I pray for those who have not yet trusted you that today would be the day of their salvation. And I pray for those who have trusted you, that they continue that I would continue to trust you and believe in the good news that you are not only our atoning sacrifice, but you are our righteousness. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.